Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. Let me start by uh, introducing Steve Smith to our listeners. Steve serves as NASA's International Space Station Program Liaison to the European Space Agency and was a two-time NCAA champion water polo player at Stanford University, where he captained the 1980 team. In all, he was a seven-time high school and collegiate All-American in swimming and water polo. At Stanford, he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering in 1981, a Master of Science degree in Electrical Engineering in 1982, and a Master's degree in Business Administration, MBA, in 1987. He has twice received NASA's Distinguished Service Medal, as well as NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal, NASA Space Flight Medal, and NASA Exceptional Service Medal. Steve is a veteran of four space flights covering 16 million miles and seven spacewalks, totaling 49 hours and 25 minutes. Steve's spacewalk time places him in the top 10 on the all-time American and world spacewalk duration lists. Uh, Steve Smith, uh, thanks for talking to Positive Coaching Alliance uh, supporters. Well, Jim, good morning, and thank you so much for the great organization you've established and for allowing me to, to participate. It's been a great, uh, a great honor. So um, you were a swimmer and a water polo player. Why did you uh, move towards focusing on water polo? Well, thanks, Jim, for asking that question. My, my favorite sport was basketball. <laughs> I played that in high school, but I realized that um, there were a lot of other basketball players that, um, you know, were good or better than I was and that uh, my, my best potential was in the water polo area because it combined both swimming and um, uh, basketball. And for me, I really wanted to do a team sport um, where you had the camaraderie of your friends and, and working together in that, in that sense of accomplishment as a, as a group. So that's one reason. I grew up near Stanford. They um, were very successful in water polo as I was a high school uh, player, and so it was a natural progression to, to go into that sport. So um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, your son, Brian, your, your daughter, Shannon, is a, a volleyball player, so that's a team sport. Your son, Brian, is a runner. Um, does, he, does he play any, any team sports? Yes, he, his favorite sport is also basketball, so he does get okay. that, uh, that effort. And, you know, in the modern uh, high school athletics arena, even the individual sports do still stress the team concept. So even in cross country and track and field, which he does. He serves as a, a team captain and as a leader in that respect. And the school he goes to in Europe um, includes uh, all the grades. So he even has, you know, third, fourth, fifth graders on his team. So it really is a, a, a team atmosphere, even though it's an individual sport. So you've spent the last decade or so in Europe. Um, I'm curious, um, what is, what's the youth sport um, What's youth sports like in Europe compared to what you remember it being in the United States? Well, it's really, really different. I mean, America is extremely unique, unique in their athletic infrastructure system, and many of the European parents and athletes that I've met really admire the American program because it encompasses so many uh, children of all different um, capabilities, 
and it's supported by largely a volunteer network. That's a truly unique American characteristic I've learned, that, that volunteerism. And so in Europe, the children really don't have sports as part of their schooling. It's really club-based. And in the club-based system, it's really coaches that are actually being paid to support um, the team. So that, that volunteerism in America is really unique and, and actually offers m- much more opportunities than, than the club-based system in Europe. One, um, one positive I've heard about the club system in Europe is that the uh, and I'll, I'll talk about football or soccer um, to the extent to which a youth club is tied to a professional team um, there's not quite as much absolute need to win it's not as much win at all cost because the professional team that in some sense controls uh, or sets the tone for the club team um, really doesn't care if that club team wins they want players who are going to develop and, you know, join the, net, the you know, the, the pro team. Uh, is, that, is that accurate or in your experience or am I off base there? No, I think in some of the sports that that's true and that um, it does help certain youth develop. But I think when you're trying to encompass a larger number of people and get the benefits from sports from a, 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 to a larger number of the youth, it's actually not as good because not as many children can participate in that other model that I see in Europe. So in that respect, it might be better for some of the children involved because it might take some of the pressure off, but you don't get this widespread influence that the sports um, infrastructure in America has. It's just, it's just not even a comparison. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about being an astronaut. Um, you... I assume this is something you've um, you dreamed about being from early age. Yes, absolutely. I grew up in the Apollo era when uh, the Apollo flights were broadcast on our black and white television and right right into our house, and that just really influenced me. I always was interested in adventurism and and airplanes and things like that. So seeing this this astronaut program really grabbed my fancy. Even I was. I would say seven or eight years old, and I began drawing pictures of rockets and astronauts and putting my name across the top of these drawings, and my parents saved all those, and so we we still have all those, but it was about 30 years later before I was actually on board Space Shuttle Endeavor on the launch pad 39 at the Kennedy Space Center having the dream come true, and there was a lot of setbacks along the way on that path, and really youth sports and my, my participation in sports taught me to be resilient and taught me to deal with disappointment and helped me overcome four rejections from NASA when I applied to be an astronaut. So um, really, youth sports helped me reach my dream. So, so let me get this straight. You applied to be an astronaut to go into space four times and were rejected. Correct. And what caused you to keep applying? Well, you know, when you have a dream uh, in your heart, you know, you're just taught, don't give up on that. And uh, I think through youth sports, I had all these skills that taught me, hey, you know, this is a learning experience, be resilient, how to set goals, how to make yourself better, how to deal with disappointment. And so all these skills really taught me to keep going. You know, if you have a dream that um, you want to come true, you've got to keep going even in spite of setbacks. And I've, I've spoken to tens of thousands of youth um, 
in motivational speeches. And my main message to them is if you fall down, get up in life. And, you know, I tell them if you're on the, the soccer pitch and you fall down, what do you do? You get back up and you keep trying, and that's really a, a goal in life also. So I remember about 10 years ago in one of the PCA publications, uh, Steve Young said that he had learned all of life's important lessons through sports, and that's really true for me. Um, it really helped me reach my goal to get into outer space. Did um, in in your rejections were there um, were these you know sent to you via email or letter or did somebody personally say to that and was there any uh, glimmer of hope like you know keep trying? Um, this is before email when I was applying, so I got a very frank one paragraph letter that said you know hey thanks for applying nice try. You can try again in two years. And so it was very frank. There was no glimmer of hope. There was no suggestion on um, what I could do to improve my chances the next time around. So I had to really use this whole skill base to figure out how to proceed on, how to make myself better. And it's the same thing in sports. So I thought to myself, okay, they, they need people who are good communicators. They need people who have wide skills, everything ranging from astronomy to scuba diving to to being, you know, comfortable working in a team atmosphere. So I just kept saying to myself, what can make me better, just like an athlete does. Um, you know, after the second or third rejection, I, I had already learned to fly airplanes, but I thought, well, if I can learn to fly airplanes aerobatically, you know, upside down in spins, et cetera, that'll show an interest in the program, and it'll make me a better, better person. And, you know, we talk a lot about the ability to be part of a team. I mean, I really tried to show my interest in the community and to be a good speaker and a good team player in various settings all the way from work to to these community philanthropic um, efforts. So I, I tried to improve myself each time I went back to NASA, and despite that, they said no the second, third, and fourth times, but I just never gave up. You know, we have a concept called the triple impact competitor, someone who makes himself better, makes her teammates better, and makes the game better. <clears throat> and this is, you know, that language was not around when you um when you were going through this ordeal but it strikes me that you were you were preparing yourself to be a triple impact competitor you you were doing everything you could to get better you were showing them that you're a good teammate and somebody that would um represent nasa well um out in the out in the community well i can remember preparing for the fifth opportunity and I knew that there would be this week-long visit to a NASA Space Center and, and all the interviews that would go with it. And I knew that um, in terms of grade point average or academic achievements, et cetera, I, I would be very pressed to be as competitive as some of the other thousands of people were applying. And I thought, you know, what are my strengths? What, what could I bring to this picture? And how could I compete with those people who were perhaps smarter or had more um, academic accolades, and I thought, you know, I'm just a really hard worker. I've learned that through sports. I'm a good communicator. I'm going to be dependable to this team. Um, I think there's things I can contribute to the other people. So I just went in with, you know, definitely not a strong confidence, but at least I knew I had worked myself uh, very hard to help contribute to this team. And and in the interviews, they ask that. They say, you know, are you a person that works best alone, or are you a team team player? Uh, how do you deal with disappointment? What are your weaknesses? What are your strengths? So when I was accepted, I thought, wow, 
you know, I had I had brought this package to them rather than someone who was spectacular in some of the things that are easy to, to define, like academics. Wow, wow. So let, let's talk about uh, let's talk about space. Um, I'm sure I'm sure you've answered this question thousands of times, but what's it like to be outside the uh, the ship, outside the well, capsule? I, I love when people ask me about space because it's obviously a passion that, you know, I was willing to dedicate my life to and and risk my life for. And I can tell you that once you go out, well, once you're on the spaceship, even inside, it's like a magic show. You can imagine just removing gravity from, from your Earth setting here where all of a sudden things that are really heavy just can float around. You know, you could just pick up an automobile, for example, with just a couple fingers and, and toss it to your friend. So it's, it's like being in a magic show. You can sleep on the wall or sleep on the ceiling with your, your sleeping bag Velcro to the, that surface. And when you go outside, you're really your own spaceship because you have this spacesuit on that's not connected to the space shuttle or to the space station with any electricity or water or anything. It's just a, a steel-braided cable to keep you from floating away. And it's, it's just like a magic show, um, Jim. You know, you're flying at 17,000 miles an hour. That's eight times the speed of a bullet just flying over the earth and going around the world in 90 minutes. So it's, it's like a magic show. I think if, um, I, I, I doubt if many six, seven, eight-year-olds will be listening to this, but if they did, I think just that, uh, that description there would cause a lot of them to want to become uh, astronauts. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. You know, one of the, one of the <clears throat> comparisons uh, that's often made with sports is like battle. You know, football coaches are often, you know, like this is war. And um, and one of the things that, that at Positive Coaching Alliance we really stress is that it's okay to make a mistake, that if you're, if you're uh, tentative, if you're not aggressive, you're not going to play well. And if your goal is to not make mistakes, you're probably not going to get where you want to go. But, but when you're on space, a mistake can mean uh, death. Any, any thoughts about that? Yeah. So, Jim, what we do when we prepare for our space flights is practice, 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 practice. I mean, I'm, I, when I was uh, training for my missions, I was just like a, a national-level collegiate athlete, practicing every day, trying to eliminate and reduce the mistakes. And so we spend about 90% of our time preparing for off-nominal situations, something where something didn't work right, a system failed, or someone made a mistake. But the most important thing is teamwork. You're always helping each other. You're always looking over each other's shoulder to make sure that everybody's doing the right thing. There were times when I had a very simple task, for example. It was simply just to throw a switch from position A to position B. And what you tried to do all the time was have someone come over and check your work as a good teammate. You'd say, you know, hey, Ellen, I'm about to throw this switch because Mission Control told me to do this. Do you agree this is the right switch, and do you agree this is the right position I'm about to put it in? So it's, it's teamwork up there, backing each other up. And I really liked what you said about how we teach our youth, you know, that you, know, you have to try things sometimes and that failure does come along with that. One of the things I always tell youth, too, is that, you know, you're going to make mistakes along the way. That's part of learning. And when people will watch you, and judge you. They won't judge you on how many of those mistakes you make. They'll judge you on how you react. So if you fell down, what did you do? 
you know, I've, I've, I've talked to college coaches who say <clears throat> when they're recruiting uh, high school uh, players, they'll say, I, I really want to see somebody when they have a bad day. <clears throat> if, I'm, if I'm going to watch this player play, um, he or she already has the physical ability or, you know, they wouldn't be on my radar screen. So what I want to do is see them when they have a bad day because that really tells me about their character. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's what they do with astronauts. You know, before we, we actually are chosen for a space flight, they put us through hundreds of hours of simulations, and 99% of those simulations, something happens. You know, there's a cracked window in the space shuttle simulator. There's a computer failure. Your spacesuit has a leak in it. How are you going to react? You know, if it's your spacesuit, how are you going to react if it's someone else's spacesuit? So that's exactly how they they um, judge us. They also send, you know, crew members out on Earth expeditions to see how they act under pressure. Uh, for example, they'll send them on a, um, a cave expedition as a group of five astronauts or out on a kayak expedition up in Alaska or up into the Sierra Nevada mountains as a camping group and just see how everybody works together. Are they all working as a team? Is there anyone that is more out for themselves versus the team? Because we don't want those people to fly in a dangerous situation. We want people who are their good teammates and good team members. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, Bill Walsh's approach to football, <clears throat> how they would, they would um, practice. I, I love that term that you just use, off-nominal situations. Is that the term? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it means something's gone wrong, right? <laughs> Correct. I'm sorry. That was, um, <clears throat> that was NASA speak, yes. No, that's great. That's great. Um, and... Um, you know, the, the San Jose Mercury News, our local paper here, has uh, been running for the last, you know, the Candlestick Park is being, uh, it just had its last uh, game, uh, probably its last game with the 49ers. And so the, the month or so leading up to it, the Mercury News has had the top 10 plays, uh, moments. And uh, number one was Dwight Clark, uh, so-called the catch. And um, they, uh, you know, Joe Montana throws the ball very high into the corner of the end zone, way before he throws way before Dwight Clark is there. <clears throat> and I remember that reading that Joe Montana said, oh, my God, I threw it too high. But, of course, uh, Dwight went up and caught it. Um, and they had practiced that, you know, like almost every day. They'd practice it two or three times, um, <clears throat> and they used it once. <laughs> but... Uh, they, they, that uh, became the play for Candlestick Park. Yeah, I remember watching that and feeling, you know, the same excitement and thought that they had practiced that many times. And, you know, most of what we train for on space flights we never use because these off-nominal situations don't occur. But if they are required, they're ready. What's well, like insurance? You have insurance and you hope you never have to use it. Exactly, exactly. So I have to tell you, I have to ask you, um, are you familiar with the book and movie Ender's Game? Absolutely. I've read the book. I've not seen the movie yet, but I've read the book. Okay. Well, it's, uh, I really like the movie, and, and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, um, it's a, I was teaching a leadership class at Stanford Business School many years ago now, and one of the, um, one of the students, one of the MBA students said, do you know about Ender's Game? I think he actually gave me a copy of it because he said it was about a leadership development program. In the book, of course, the kids are six, seven years old. In the movie, they're like 10 or 11. But, um, and Ender is constantly being put into these situations um, where things are going wrong and they want to see how he responds. Um, so 
let's um what is um it's it's been a while since you played since you played youth sports um and I'm wondering what parents and coaches were like then versus what they're like now yeah my observation on that yeah, Jim. My observation was that, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there was less pressure on the, the young people when they were doing sports. My parents just provided all the infrastructure um, that I needed to participate, but they never were yelling at the coaches or yelling at me during the games. They just made sure I was at the games and at the practices on time, had a clean uniform, and so they provided what I call the opportunities and then they let the coaches, you know, handle the, the day-to-day practices in the games. And, of course, we've seen now the uh, much more um, uh, involvement of some of the parents and, and some bad incidences, of course. I think it's still the exception, but I think it's really important that um, we continue to do what PCA is doing, and that's making sure that the, the parents that are volunteering understand that, you know, it's okay to teach the kids to win, but really – you're doing all these other things. You're developing the, the kids for their future lives, and um, that really should be the focus. I've read a book, Jim. It's called uh, Blessings of a Skinned Knee, and it's the best parenting book I've ever read. And it says, you know, parents, you have to realize that your kids are going to be average in a lot of things and that you can't expect them to be you know, fantastic and everything. There's just too much competition and the odds are too high. And you just have to accept that and just help them get the best out of the activities they do, whatever they are. And for sports, it's all these things you learn through sports, you know, how to communicate, how to work as a team, how to be resilient to, to failures or to setbacks. So I think the pressure on children is just so much higher now than it was back when we were youth. You know, you gave me that book years ago. And uh, you're right. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. It's just a fantastic book. Um, you know, one of the one, one of the the, uh, the things that I think goes on is is in youth sports here is overcoaching. <clears throat> um, kids often are not allowed to figure things out themselves because coaches feel like um, you know what it, they wouldn't characterize it. But they want automatons. They want kids who are going to do exactly what they tell them to do. Um, that certainly would not get you through the problems, the uh, off-nominal situations in space, would it? That's right. That's exactly right. You need to teach them to be resilient and to be prepared for those other other situations. And, you know, the whole purpose of sports is, sports is for the kids to have fun and to be joyful out there. So you've been um, you've been a sport a youth coach and a sports parent. What uh, what advice would you have for? for other parents? Well, it would be to make sure that, you know, your children are having a good time out there and that you're providing the opportunity for them to try as many different things as your family can support in terms of the resources they have and time and money and things like that. And to kind of fight the urge to to push your children ahead in sports. I mean, there are children who are going to have certain talents that um, might suggest that you provide them with more opportunities and, and suggest that they move ahead a little bit faster. But the majority of the kids out there just need to have the, the opportunity to be in a good situation and to let the coaches coach them and as parents to provide support 
and for the for the children to to for example make practices and be at the games and things like that and then you know as the coach um I had the opportunity to start coaching even at Stanford with some of the water polo players there. And for me, it was just wonderful to try and emulate what John Wooden was doing in all his great uh, teachings, and that's to prepare people for the rest of their life, to try and win the game that you're going to play this next week. But the real purpose is really to prepare them to be good people and to be um, valuable members of our society. I remember the NCAA had a great slogan in the past five years on several of the the sports events that you'd watch on TV, and they, and they had student-athletes who said, you know, 99% of us that are in sports go on to be professionals in something else, like as a teacher or as a, as a coach or as an engineer and not as a professional in a sports league. Yeah, I, lo- I love the, the phrase. They said uh, 99% of us are going pro in a different in, in a different." Uh sport or whatever. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And you've been a fan of John Wooden for a long time. Um, how, how have you used that with your own kids? Well, John Wooden was, of course, a great, a great example of someone who could teach um, young people to be good in sports, but also to be wonderful people in life. And so we've actually have some of his books at home. And what we try and do is actually read before dinner every night or every other night just one one of his thoughts, one of his pyramid of success blocks, for example, just to our our 16-year-old son who just before dinner, just to remind him that, hey, you know, it's really great to seek success in sports, but the really important thing is the path along the way and your character that you're developing. So we read John Wooden quotes to our family. Wow. That's, uh, that's I'm sure, um, you know, we, we gave... Uh, our Lifetime Achievement Award to uh, John Wooden uh, several years ago uh, before he died, and his son, Jim Wooden, uh, and his uh, wife came and accepted the award for him. And um, and I've had the chance to <clears throat> to meet and interview and just be on panels with uh, a number of John Wooden's uh, players. And, uh, you know, he's, he's the real deal. It's like sometimes you think, wow, could he really be that good? And yeah, he was. Let, let's let's talk about um, about the sport of water polo. Um, I think water polo has to be one of the most physically demanding sports um, of any kind. And um, the um, it, it, w- is is that an accurate statement? Do you feel like it's it's more demanding than swimming, for example, or playing basketball? Well, I, you know, I'm, I was a water polo player, so I'm going to be a little bit biased. But because you can't touch the bottom <laughs> of the swimming pool and you're going back and forth, resting is really difficult. It's really a difficult sport to find time to rest in. So that's one part. And the other part is, part is that about oh, 70%, 80% of the game is out of view. So it's underwater. And um, even things that are legal in the sport – you know, the, the fans and the referees really may not have an appreciation for it because they don't see them. So I would definitely say it's one of the, one of the tougher uh, sports. Um, the, um, I, was, I was talking with Claudia Dodson with USA Water Polo recently, and she mentioned that a, a former national team coach had given a talk, and he was talking about um, why the, the, the style of play in the United States. And the reason the United States has been successful – 
uh, is that, and this may, this sounds a little weird, but we don't have the physical specimens they have in Europe. That, you know, the big, strong uh, people tend to go and play basketball or football. And in Europe, uh, those big, strong guys go and play water polo. And that required the United States to um, to rely on speed and strategy and smartness, and that uh, the United States overperformed. Um, but the problem is that he felt like water polo in the U.S. was trying to emulate now the European model, whereas the Euro- Europeans are saying we got to, you know, we got to be more like the United States. Um, I just love your thoughts. I mean, it seems like it's a great sport, and I'd love uh, your thoughts on uh, that that issue about strength versus. Uh, strategy, shall we say? Yeah, I think you know you always have to work to your strengths, and for us, I think it is our strategy and our speed and our finesse. And I think we have to we have to deal with the fact that we're going to weigh ten or twenty or thirty pounds less player for player, and there's not really much you can do about that. I mean, the the players on our side, of course, can lift weights, etc. But in the end, if you're that much lighter than the competition then uh, you really need to work on your strengths. That's true in any sport. So that's why we've continued to do that, work on speed, work on finesse, work on the things that you're good at, and control the things you can control and not worry about the ones that you cannot control. Which I think is the, um, the key insight from sports psychology, that all the sports psychology stuff in the world comes back down to focus on what you can control and block out the stuff you can't control. Exactly. I mean, I've said that to my family as a parent and to players I've coached as a coach. So, um, I mean, one, you, you mentioned the, the issue of, you know, 80% or so of what goes on is not visible because it's under the water. Um, and, you know, I've talked to water polo coaches who say, you know, if you – uh, if you don't engage in slightly uh, deviant practices, um, if you if you if you just stick to what only what's uh, legal under the water, you're probably going to get beat. And John Tanner, Stanford's women's water polo coach, <clears throat> once addressed that uh, in a in a uh, forum I I was part of, and he said. Um, his feeling was that all that uh, that below the water illegal stuff really distracted you, that if you're thinking about, um, you know, getting back at somebody who tried to pull your shorts off or, you know, who, you know, kicked you or whatever, uh, you're not thinking about making the right play. And no, so his John, focus... John, yeah, John hit the nail on the head. John and I were teammates and um, a very eloquent man and, and a great coach. And that is his point was exactly what you want to teach children, not only in sports, but all the other things they're doing, you know. You need to worry about what you're doing yourself. You need to be a good person because at the end of the day, you're, you know, reportable to yourself. And so that's why, you know, concentrate on doing the best you can with what's legal and what you're good at and what you've worked on. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, let's see. Anything that I uh, you'd like to say that I haven't? Uh, oh, I know, I have a question for you. Why why did you get involved with PCA? You were one of uh, one of our very first supporters on our national advisory board. Yeah, Jim, I did that for well a couple or three reasons. One is I love sports and I love the opportunity to help youth as they develop. But for me, the second was that there was a void, 
And I could see that the problem was getting worse and worse where there were parents who were in their good heart volunteering but not really having the skills to do what was best for the kids and what would be the best investment for the kids. So PCA really filled a void very early on, right when the whole trend was changing. And the third reason is, you know, it's I'm always looking for things that have huge impacts for a relatively small cost. And, you know, what PCA has done to equip parents who are volunteering um, is just a huge, huge benefit to our youth and, and the whole movement ahead and to the parents who are watching. And so I was always looking for something that had huge impacts. And so that's what uh, – that's what PCA really offered. Well, Steve, uh, any any last thoughts before we wrap this up? This has been fabulous. Yeah, what I one thing I'd like to mention, Jim, again, is that you know I go out and speak to youth all the time, and a lot of the times I'm going to forums where it's all athletes, and what I tell the athletes is, you know, sports is going to teach you so many things, and you'll just benefit from so many things, and it's some of the obvious things like learning to communicate, learning to schedule your time so that you can be a good student and a good athlete. You know, you learn values, you learn resilience, you learn how to deal with pressure and all those things. But you also get something out of it, and that's these lifelong friendships. I mean, so many of the people that I'm still friends with were these people who I uh, met as athletes and, and became friends with, and I ended up marrying an athlete. So, there's these lifelong influences. And um, I truly think that when I was in the interview board for the fifth time to become an astronaut, that they said, this guy is an athlete. And athletes really bring a lot to whatever job they're in because they've learned all these skills. And so athletes are dependable, and they're really good contributors to society. So. That's, you know, just the value of sports, and I'm just so thankful that uh, PCA is helping develop these future positive contributors to our society through uh, what you're doing. You know, I, a couple of uh, thoughts there. One is I'm, I'm still friends, uh, you know, still in contact with several of my friends who were on my uh, high school basketball and football teams. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really because of the, of the sports connection there. Um, a word that we use a lot, uh, in positive coaching lines is grit, and we define grit. Um, Angela Duckworth at the University of Pennsylvania defines it as um, uh, passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And uh, I think I'm going to remember your um, your fifth time being the success as an astronaut. Boy, you really showed grit there, and that's one of the things we want kids to get out of uh, get out of sports. So, and you really can't show grit if everything goes right all the time. <laughs> it's it's the setback that give you a chance to show what you what you're made of. Yeah, Steve, I, I tell my you. friend. Yeah, I would not go, have go been a, a NASA astronaut if I had not been a, a an athlete growing up. Yep. Steve, just a delightful interview. Thank you so much. I know the, the, the coaches, parents, and athletes who listen to this are going to get a lot out of it. So thanks for taking the time. Hey, Jim, that's an extremely small investment of time compared to what you've done in the last 15 years. So thanks for, for filling the void. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.